person, it's great to have you. And I just want to let you know my hope for you is the same as it is for every person every week that comes in contact with what we do at Crossbridge. And that's no matter where you are in your faith, that you would be able to take one step towards Jesus because that is what we are all about. That's what we're all about, and I'm so grateful that you're here. And you've come at a great time because we are in the second week of our summer series called The Life of Moses. And I, I love this series because we were talking last week about how we're going to be looking almost like reading a biography over the summer that we would dive into somebody else's life to learn about them. We're going to be learning about The Life of Moses and uh, I like this week, some of you have reached out and said, like, what biographies could I read? Like, you, you showed a bunch of them last week. What, what's a good one? Because I'd like to read. And, and some of you are actually engaging in reading. So I'm proud of you. Um, this is good. And there's some great biographies out there. But what's cool about most biographies is when those points of tension come into someone's life to see how they handle it. You know, and it's when something happens that's outside their control that hits them and they wonder, you know, for whatever reason, how do I respond to that? Now, things happen in all of our lives that we can't control. Would you agree? All the time. And what's interesting is you read different people's biographies is you realize that there's things that play into how you make your decision. Things like race, things like gender, economics, where you grow up geographically, what your, the spiritual background of your family or you know, area looks like, uh, how smart you are. It's like, really? That can make a difference? Absolutely. These things all make a difference in how we respond to these tensions that hit our life. And funny enough, I think when these tensions hit kids and you read the biographies of when they're little, the, people make bad decisions. <laughs> You know, they just, they make instinctual, like, instinct decisions. They, they, they respond instead of really thinking through. It's a lot more reacting. But as they get older, if that person has kind of learned about who they are as a person, they've done some homework on their own past, when those same types of unexpected moments come, they're grounded in who they are, and therefore they make a different kind of decision. They make a more educated decision because of their values, but it almost always comes from the, them answering the question that every single one of us is asking all the time, and that question simply is, who am I? Who, who am I? This is what every kid is asking. This is what every teenager is asking. Uh, honestly, this is what every adult is still asking. And this is the question, this is the moment, who am I that I'd love to look at in the life of Moses this morning? So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 2. And um, uh, how many of you brought a paper Bible with you this week? You know, I, I kind of, oh, look at you, you're amazing. You get bonus points in heaven. Um, you could take that up with Jesus, he'll, he'll, he'll say, yeah, just say Jimmy said it. Um, if you uh, don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one so that you have one that's super readable. Uh, I would love for you to bring this with us. And if you're watching with us online, I can't see you raise it up. But uh, I'm going to assume that you have it and it's open on your coffee table or legs if you're at the beach, okay? And so here's, the, here's what's great. We're going to be in the book of Exodus in chapter 2. And as you're turning there, does anybody remember the Hebrew name for this book? Pop, pop, pop question, you know. It's the, the book of Shemot. Ooh, someone said it. Shemot. Um, Shemot is the, the, the name of this book. And does anybody remember what that means? 
Names. It's the book of names. Nailed it. Um, every time we're going to read this uh, book of names together, we're paying attention for the names that are mentioned, right? We're paying attention for the names that are mentioned. Uh, and names are important because especially to the Hebrew people, this had everything to do. Your name told you about your past, about your present, and spoke into the destiny of who you were. And so with that, let's jump into uh, the book of Shemot, Exodus chapter 2. In verse 1, it says this, about this time, a man and a woman from the tribe of Levi got married. Now, the first three words here, what are they? Read them out for me in bold. Okay, about this time. When we see things like this, we should kind of pause and say, about what time? If you were not with us last week, this is really an update to say, about chapter 1, this is in chapter 1, just to summarize, we've got a nation that's existed, this nation of Hebrews, these tribes that started at 70 people 430 years ago, that now, when we pick it up in Exodus, are have multiplied greatly. The Hebrew word that they're multiplied actually means swarmed. Like that's how many people there were. And so, uh, you know, there's so many Hebrews in this land that the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he's worried they're going to come against us. If someone comes in, they're going to join them and we're going to get overtaken. So we need to stop them having kids. So let's work them extra hard. And when he works him extra hard, he realized that's not going to work. And so he then makes a decision to call the two kind of top Hebrew midwives. Does anybody remember their names? Pua is one. Very good. I, I, you're, you're, say it boldly. That's okay. Shifra. Shifra. She, go, go ahead. Say it with me. Shifra. And Pua. These are good names. Remember them. These are the names of the two women that they stood up, these heroes, said to Pharaoh, oh no. And then they threw shade at him saying, your, your Egyptian women are nice and cute, but these Hebrew women, they get things done when they deliver. We just can't get there in time, right? They are strong. And so Pharaoh, kind of getting frustrated, said, fine then, just take all the baby boys and throw them in the Nile. Just get rid of them. Let's just be done with this. And so when we read in Exodus chapter 2, verse 1, about this time, there's a lot in those three words, right? About this time, and this is what we read. About this time, a man and a woman from the tribe of Levi got married. Now, marriage, marriage is what brings us to get, no, uh, that was, that was like last series, last series, sorry. Um, if you missed last series, 80s blockbusters, oh, it was fun. Marriage is great, but what happens at this time? What happens at this time when this married couple gets pregnant? Could you think instead of the joy, instead of the celebration that you would have like with your family, could you imagine the stress that each couple would feel in this moment? A couple gets pregnant and, and then they have, in this case, this couple gets pregnant and they have a baby boy. You, you see, somehow, I'm not sure how they did it. I'm not sure how they did it, but they hid this baby boy long enough to where he was not in jeopardy of being thrown into the Nile. He lived to be a very healthy adult. And, and I know you're like, wait, Moses? No, 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 this isn't the story of Moses. You see, this is a character that we won't be introduced to who's not named till a couple chapters later with his sister Miriam. This is an older brother that, that we tend to ignore. Like, oh, no, he exists at this time. At this time, a baby is born and makes it through. But something in Egypt must have shifted between the birth of 
Aaron, this older brother, Miriam, this daughter, because within a couple of years, this couple gets pregnant again, and it's a baby boy. And the best they could do is hide this baby boy for about three months. That's all they have three months. And at three months, they have to make a drastic move. And so the mother, who is never named, and her daughter, who we know her name is Miriam, they come together and they build... Uh, does anybody remember what they build? Okay. We always use the word basket. Like we watch Prince of Egypt and we're like, oh, it's got like cushions on. It's like a floating bassinet. Um, no, no, no. Actually, the, the Hebrew word that's used here is ark. They made a baby boat. Okay, they made a baby boat. You know, ark is only used twice, Noah and right here with this boat. And so they make a baby boat, and strategically, I love the care of this mom. They make sure that the boat itself has, like, pitch on the inside. There's no water that's going to get in. They put this baby boy into it, and then they strategically place this baby boat in the reeds where the Nile is not going to take it. They place it in a safe place that's like a, an inlet off of it so that it's a place where they know the Pharaoh's daughter comes to take a bath. It's a safe place. But somehow this baby boat got stuck in the reeds. And so they stick this boat in the reeds. And Miriam, she kind of comes off and she stays a distance. And she does what every young parent, and even though she's a sibling here, every young parent hates. She lets the baby cry. And the baby continues to cry until Pharaoh's daughter makes her way for her, uh, for her bath and hears this cry. Here's the distress, and this is what we read when she opens up the baby boat. In verse 6, it says, when the princess opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Can I just say I love how in this nation, where the most powerful man in the world is trying to eliminate life, the life of babies, it's the women who keep stepping up to save these kids. The beginning of Exodus, you cannot read this and not recognize that God moves and has changed this nation through some heroes, both Hebrew women and now Pharaoh's daughter. They keep stepping up. And as soon as the princess responds to, there's a baby, this must be one of them. I mean, miraculously, this little girl comes out of the reeds. Oh, hey. And, and so here's what's great. Miriam, this older sister that they don't know yet, says, listen, can, can, I, this is probably stressful for you. This is a baby. I see that you feel sorry for him. Do you want me to go get like a Hebrew woman to nurse him? And it, some of you are probably thinking like, that's really weird. This is actually a super common practice that um, families would help nurse each other's kids and because that's just how you help take care of each other in this moment. And it wasn't a weird thing. It's not an awkward thing. It was a beautiful way of living in community. And so this little girl says, do you want me to get a Hebrew woman to do this? And she's like, oh, yes, that's a great idea. And so, of course, Miriam does what? She goes and gets her mom. And so when she goes and gets her mom, she brings the mother back. And the princess is awesome. The princess is great because she's like, ooh, I... I this is important. I'll pay you to take care of this kid and I'll come back and get him later. So mom just had a kid that should have died and now she's getting paid for nursing? I know some of you are like, sign me up. I'll get paid for nursing. Like, this would be great. So she accepts the offer and now the baby is back with the family. 
this is where things are going to get complicated. Are you ready? This is where, if you're like, that was already complicated enough, this is where it gets messy. In verse 10, in the first half, we read this. Later, when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her own son. Now, there's no way of knowing how long of a period of time this is, okay? Some Jewish rabbis and theologians that I have read, they say, they all, many of them agree, most of them agree that it was at least three years old, at least three. Many of them think that this boy was probably around seven to eight, most likely eight years old, and there are still a few that are like, he could have been up to 12 years old. Now, that's, that's some time here. It's not like, you know, this baby's mother nursed this child for just a couple months and then sent him back. We're talking a couple of years here. And, and they think that it could have been up to seven, eight, or even 12 because the Hebrew word that's used here for when, you know, when he was a boy, a little while later, when he was a boy, that, that word is actually child or young man. That's the word that's used. So th we're talking years at this point. It's so easy to just read that and fire through thinking, okay, cool, and not pause and think about that little detail. Let's just imagine for a second an eight-year-old little boy who's been living in that home. There's a lot of questions that come to my mind. A lot of questions that if he was seven or eight, let's just imagine he's eight years old in this home. Did his parents tell him they were his parents? Did his parents tell him the story of making a, a baby boat and how they rescued him? Did, did the princess come for visits? I mean, she knows who's nursing and taking care of this child. Did the princess come just to remind them who paid them? Did they speak only Hebrew in this house? Was that the language that this baby learned to begin with? Was that his heart language? Did his parents talk about the abuse that every single other Hebrew was receiving from these Egyptian slave masters as they worked so hard? Did this little boy even want to be adopted by this princess? Did he have to learn Egyptian before he was adopted? Was it a bilingual home? One of the simplest questions that I have that kind of wrestles with that it never addresses. Did he have a Hebrew name? Was he given a name? And I know you're probably thinking, his name's Moses. That's not his Hebrew name. It, it, it's not. All I'm saying is if, if he was in a home for eight years and then his own mom brings him to Pharaoh's daughter to be adopted, how much does this mess with your identity and who you are? Right? And when you show up at your, this is your new mom's house, the rest of verse 10 tells us this is what happened, right? Later when the boy was older, let's say eight years old, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter who adopted him as her own son. The princess named him Moses for she explained, I lifted him out of the water. This is the first time we ever read the name of the baby. This is the first time. It's not the name given to him by his Hebrew family. When we say the name Moses, we are using the Egyptian name for this baby. This is the Egyptian name that was given to him. 
And that name simply means, in, in, in Egyptian, it, it would be to lift out. To lift out. We talk about how names mean so much in this book, and we have to pay attention to them because it spoke about your past, your present, your destiny. The princess marked this boy with a name that would remind everyone in her father's house that this boy, this is the water boy. That's who this is. This is the water boy. This boy, the one who probably at this point looked different, he talked with a different accent because I'm guessing Hebrew was his heart language, and maybe it wasn't the same way. Moses' very name reminded him, and it reminded everyone else who was around him, that he did not belong in this Egyptian home. He is the water boy. Honestly, I, I don't think he grew up like we see in the Prince of Egypt, where him and, you know, Ramses are having these, these races together, and they're, you know, chariot racing, and laughing, and goading, and playing, and doing, no, 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 I don't think that was it at all, I'm sure that he was one of those kids who experienced racism at a very early age, because he was different than the people in his home, I'm positive that whether he learned it in that home, because he looked different, or he saw it from the way that his parents and all of his Hebrew relatives were treated, he knew that he was different. He understood racism existed. I'm positive as he walked around that house the way he's he was treated, he was reminded all the time, just so you know, you're not one of us. You're not one of us. I wonder in this moment... If, if growing up constantly remembering that you're not like the people around you, do you think this would give you a bit of an inferiority complex? Would, would this mess with your identity and who you are and why you would make what decisions? Am I, am I making a decision to fit in with my Egyptian family? Or, or wait, was that really my family to begin with? Like, why would they give me up and do this? But Moses... Moses was his name, and I wonder if he felt like he needed to make that name count, to make a name for himself. But it was an Egyptian name. It's not a Hebrew name. So he wasn't really Hebrew, was he? And what's crazy is this princess names him to lift out. And if names in Exodus have to do with our past, our present, and our destiny, I have a great... <laughs> feel pretty confident in saying she had no idea that she was naming his destiny to lift a nation out of the very home that he was going to come into. That this name was speaking into his destiny and it would be shame to begin with, but it would be victory in the end. And I say all of this because there are times when we read the scriptures together, we forget how human the people we're talking about are. That there's so much that goes into their stories and we're like, oh, it's a couple verses and we forget that it's decades of time. And as we continue to talk about the life of Moses together over the next couple of weeks, we have to remember that this story, that this kind of issue that he's dealing with is not easy and it's going to impact every decision that he makes for the rest of his life. These formative years that he has when he's imprinted on to figure out who am I and answer that question we have to remember that he likely had no idea who he was. He had no idea who he was when he went into that house. And that's why I believe, and I genuinely believe this, we all try to make a name for ourselves when we feel like we don't have one. 
we all try to make a name for ourselves when we feel like we don't have one. When our name is not comfortable, when we don't feel good about answering that question, who am I? We will try to make a name and do what we can to stand out. And I think that's what's behind what Moses does next. Check out verse 11 with me. It says this, many years later, when Moses had grown up, uh, we're talking probably, most people think in between like 35 and 40 years old at this point, okay? Um, so a couple decades later, he went out to visit his own people. Okay, just pause there. He went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews. And he saw how hard they were forced to work. And during his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. After looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. Let's pause. Moses knows a bit of his story, doesn't he? This gives us an idea. Who does he identify with? The Hebrews. The Hebrews. This isn't a trick question, right? It says his fellow Hebrews, his own people. This is who he knows he connects this with. This is my tribe. And, and he makes here a horrible decision. And he knows that it's a horrible decision. Do you know why? He looks all over the place to see if someone's watching. If you're ever in a situation where you're wondering, what do I need to do here? If you have to look around to see if people are watching you to see what you're about to do, it's the wrong thing to do. Right? Right? If you need to, to make sure it's done in secret so no one knows, it's the wrong thing to be doing. If, if, if that's easy. Should I? Shouldn't I? Well, would you be cool making the decision if people watch? Well, no. Then don't do it. Right? Don't, don't do it. It's pretty easy. So he knows this is wrong, but he steps in. Why? He steps in to kill the Egyptian, and he hides the evidence because I think this is his moment to say to the rest of this group that's why, like, this... Even these two guys that are fighting, or this one guy who's being abused, he's, I am one of you. I'm, I'm like you. You and I are together, right? And just to make sure that they're cool, the next day, in verse 13, it, it says, the next day when Moses went out to visit his people, again, he saw two Hebrew men fighting. Why are you beating up your friend, Moses said to the one who had started the fight. The man replied, who anointed you to be our prince and judge? Are you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Well, that didn't really go like Moses' plan, did it? Right? He went in trying to help his people, and instead, right, he, he commits this crime to prove I'm one of you, and now instead the Hebrew calls him out. You're not our prince. You're not our judge. He might as well have yelled, you're not one of us. You don't belong here. The same exact lie that he heard his entire life from eight years on and older. You're not one of us. You don't belong here. And instead of making a name for himself when he didn't have one, he ended up making enemies of every single person around him. He didn't fit as an Egyptian. He didn't fit as a Hebrew. And now we pick it up at verse 14. It says that Moses was afraid, thinking everyone knows what I did. And sure enough... Pharaoh heard what happened. He tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. So now he freaks out. I don't fit. And what do we do when we feel like we don't fit? We run away from everyone. And he takes off on a, approximately a 200-mile journey from Egypt, and he heads uh, southeast 
across the Sinai Peninsula to try to get all the way over into this land of Midian, so far away that Pharaoh cannot find him, that he won't send an army after him, that he will not pursue him. This is not, like when we read this, we're like, oh, we went across. This is not yesterday I killed somebody, then I got called out, and tomorrow I'm in Midian. It's going to take a while to journey through the desert, and he's going to be thinking about what he has done. Who am I? What am I doing? And now we read in verse 15, and when Moses arrived in Midian, he sat down beside a well, and a priest of Midian had seven daughters who came as usual to draw water and to fill the water troughs for their father's flock. Some other shepherds came and chased them away, so Moses jumped up, and he rescued the girls from the shepherds, and then he drew water for their flocks. Look at Moses, man. He's jumping right back in rescuing people, right? You think he might have learned his lesson coming through the desert, but what's interesting here, it feels different, doesn't it? It feels a bit different because these girls come to the well all the time. It says that they're regularly here. They come at the, you know, the, the task of their dad because they're shepherds, and now they feed them. And let me tell you, being shepherds is a horrible job in the desert, but that's what they do. Water is not easy to come by in the desert. So they've got a well. They know where to go to feed their and to water their flocks. So these, these ladies show up, and Moses then steps up and says, wait a second, they were here first. You can't mistreat them. He does not kill these other shepherds. He chases them away. And then not only does he chase them away, he actually takes on the attitude of a servant and he waters their flocks. Jump to verse 19. So when the girls returned to Ruel, that's their father, he asked, why are you back so soon today? How do they describe Moses here? What's those two words? An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds, they answered. And then he drew water for us and watered our flocks. And I tell you, Moses showed up looking like an Egyptian. In Egyptian clothes that he kept on, he crossed the entire desert. And when they explain him to their dad, he's an Egyptian. But I wonder if they would have asked Moses, what tribe do you belong to? Who are you? An Egyptian? Nah, you're not one of us, river boy. We're going to kill you. Oh, would he say that he was a Hebrew? Nah, you're not one of us, you want to be prince. Even your name proves that you were lifted out of us. I don't think he'd have an answer. I imagine a defeated man in this moment with no identity, carrying a heart language of one group, but the appearance of another Come on, Moses is a mess at this point in his life. He's in his 30s or 40s, and he has no idea who he is. And this is a dangerous place for anyone to be in life. That you feel like you don't fit in any place at any time, isolated from everyone. I, I like the way that Henry Nouwen, he's one of my favorite writers. He puts it in his book, Life of the Beloved. He said, we human beings can suffer immense deprivations with great steadfastness. But when we sense that we no longer have anything to offer anyone, we quickly lose our grip on life. Instinctively, we know that the joy of life comes from the ways in which we live together. And that in the pain of life comes from the many ways we fail to do that well. What's so cool about the story that we read with Moses 
is the father of these seven women, these seven girls. They get back, and he's like, why are you back so early? Like, come on, did you shortcut the job? And they're like, no, no, this guy stepped up. Well, where is he? <laughs> like, go get him. And there is a father in this story who says, go get that guy and invite him here because he has saved you. He has rescued you, and he has served you. He invites Moses into their home. He, Moses stays with them. Eventually, he actually marries one of his, those seven daughters, and that's, the, her name is Zipporah. I mean, life's looking up at this point, right? You found a family. You found what's going on. On the outside, it may look like things are going well, but the reality is on the inside, Moses still has no idea who he is. And I tell you that because we get a glimpse of his internal heart when his son is born. In verse 22, it says, Later, she, Zephorah, gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom. For he explained, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land. He's describing his situation. I don't fit anywhere. And, and is he saying, I've been a foreigner in the Egypt land when I was there? Is he saying that now I'm a foreigner with my tribe, or I'm a foreigner here in the desert, or... Does he just feel this as a whole with his entire life? He has no idea who he is, and he's trying to figure it out. And he is trying to answer the question that every single one of us are trying to answer. Who am I? Who am I? You know, I used to think, honestly, that this was just something that that kids wrestled with, and so they reacted and made decisions to try to figure that out. I... I, I Working with teenagers for so long, I recognize that every teenager is asking this question, and they're asking it of themselves and the people around them and through their parents. And, then, and they, so that's, we always expect that they're trying to figure out who they are. We even give the phrase to them, oh, as they're figuring themselves out, right? We give them space. But I'm not sure when we stop vocalizing that question, but I have sat with too many adults who are lost in the life that they live and they have no idea how to answer the question, who am I? Who am I? This happens when a kid is born. This happens when we're fired from a job that we found our identity in. This happens when we get married. This happens when we lose a family member. This happens when crisis hits us and we realize I should have responded one way, but I did not and now I, I don't know why that happened. Who am I? Why am I doing this? I'm not sure why we try to guard the fact that we're questioning our identity so much, but let me just tell you, if you look around the room right now, everyone in this room is still asking that question. If you're like, no, nah, I got this down. Really? Teach me. Then let me walk with you because I still ask this question when I react in a way I didn't expect. Who am I? One thing I do know about myself is I am a follower of Jesus. I want to do everything I can to apprentice under him as my teacher, as my Lord, as my Savior, as my model for life. But I know, and I believe as I read his stories, that there are moments he had to ask this question too. Right? Figure out who he was. And I do believe there's a moment when Jesus is told who he was, and it wasn't just a reminder for him, but it was a reminder for the people around him, a moment that was so important that marked the change in his life, 
And it wasn't his bar mitzvah when a Jewish boy becomes a man. That moment, I think, was robbed from him because they weren't sure Joseph was his dad. And it was all questionable. So he didn't get that. But there's a moment that every writer of his biography records when he's baptized. And it says this in Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 16. This gospel writer, this biographer of Jesus says, after his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens opened and he saw the Spirit of God, Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, and this is the declaration, who am I? Here's the answer to who am I? This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. This is my kid. This is my child. This is my son. And let me tell you, if you missed Wednesday night, we got to celebrate 15 baptisms together. Um, oh my gosh, what a night if you were there with us. Amen? Oh my gosh. What what a night. And on this night, we celebrate not that you're saved because you're baptized, but that you identify with Jesus because you're baptized, that, that you go under this water and say, I am dead to sin and to what I desire in life because I'm dead like Jesus was. But he didn't stay dead, did he? No. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he was resurrected on the third day, that he is alive right now. And as we come out of the water, we identify with him in our life, in resurrection, that this is not the end of our life. And the very same words that are spoken over Jesus are spoken over us when we apprentice for Jesus. This is my son. This is my daughter. You are my son and you are my daughter in whom I love and I am well pleased. You want to follow Jesus. Oh, the father looks at you and says, I can tell you who you are. You don't have to answer who am I with an answer of I am a wife or I am a husband or I am a mother or I am a and you put your vocation in or age in or your nationality in. None of that matters where it starts and ends with the answer to who am I is I am a child of God. That's, that's the answer to this question. And until we can get to a place of truly submitting our lives to Jesus to say, I will give you everything and follow you. We will wrestle and look at every person around us to define that answer. Look at every vocation and say, why can't I be happy there? We'll run from relationship to relationship until we recognize that we're so deeply loved that no human will ever love us that way. This is who you are. When you place your trust in Jesus, you are a child of God, and you can have any excuse you want right now, and I say it's garbage. It's garbage, and those are lies of the enemy. But, but, but Jimmy, I'm addicted to this thing. God won't love me until I figured that one out. But I did these things, and let me tell you, it was bad. And if anybody knew, I'd be in trouble because I, I looked every way, and I think no one still knows. Yeah, but Jimmy, you don't understand. I, I, I don't know if I'm, I can give those things up because I just have too many questions. God still loves you. There is nothing you can do to outsin his grace. There's no questions you can ask that are outside of his answers, and a perfectly good answer is not yet. I'll tell you that in eternity. Who are you? When do you ask this question? 
when we place our lives in the hands of Jesus, God says to us, this is my son. This is my daughter whom I love. Please hear me this morning. You, you are God's beloved child. He looks on you with favor. He celebrates over you. He weeps for you. If you find yourself in a place asking, who am I? And you still don't have an answer to that. I want to tell you, a relationship with Jesus is the beginning of a story that changes and gives you an answer to that question. You will never find your identity outside of a relationship with Jesus. Does it mean it's easy and now, you know, people like Moses are going to come and feed your sheep for you all the time? No, 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 no. Not at all. But it means that when we react and those things come our way that are unexpected, like in every biography that we read, when we don't know, we react from a place of, but I'm a child of God who's loved and life still sucks sometimes. It's just the way it is. But it doesn't change how much he loves us. And we make mistakes and instead of running into the desert because we've tried to bury that Egyptian, God's like, no, no, I know what you did. I can forgive that. That was a horrible decision. But I believe that too many here today are running. And you think you've outsinned God's grace. You have not. And so this morning, before we close with communion together, I just simply want to ask you, have you placed your trust in the story of Jesus? The story of the man who simply said, my identity is I am the child of God but I am also a sacrificial lamb that I will give up my life for the sake of the world because I love them so much. You are loved. And so this morning, I would just like to invite you, if you have not placed your hope in Jesus, to do that now. And um, you just uh, if you're online with us, same to you. This is an invitation for you to follow Jesus. If you have not done that, we want to walk with you, with those who are in person. We are here to walk with you as you follow Jesus. Because all of us will have the story of Moses to be in the desert. So if you would, would you pray with me? And and if you would, just bow your heads with me. If you're here this morning and you're in that place thinking, I have no idea who I am And I have never really placed my trust in Jesus to say, I'm going to apprentice with you. I'm going to follow you and your teachings because I desire to be forgiven from my sin. And I want to stand in a place of a firm foundation following you. If if you're here this morning and you've never placed your trust in Jesus and want to do that right now, would you just raise your hand for me? And if you're here this morning and you feel like I've placed my trust in Jesus at some point, I know that, I believe that I am saved, but I still wrestle with who I am and I'm having trouble believing that right now. I want to pray a blessing of belief over you. If that's where you are right now, you feel like you need to just hear the voice of the Father saying, you're my child that I love, would you just raise your hand for me? And Amen. Okay. For those of you who raised your hand the first time, would 
would you just pray with me? And you can pray in the silence of your heart or out loud. It doesn't matter. There's nothing special. But Jesus, I want to follow you. I know that I have been wandering. But I need you to help me find a grounding. I confess that I have sinned and failed to love you and love people. Would you forgive me? Would you help me to believe in that forgiveness? And would you fill me with the Holy Spirit and empower me to follow you all the days of my life? In Jesus' name, amen. And for those this morning, would you stand with me together, all of us, um, as we prepare for communion, who just need to feel the love of the Father. We're reminded of that in the story of communion together. And if you uh, did not receive communion and take it on the way in, uh, if you just raise your hand up, Bill has a bucket with some in there, and we would love to get that for you. Um, if you're here and you're thinking, I wish I could feel the love of God on me and, and remember that he's my father, I need to be reminded of that. That's what communion's all about. This is what we celebrate every single week together is that we come together as family, beloved brothers and sisters. And uh, Bill, we have a couple up here in the front. We come together as beloved brothers and sisters who have dedicated our lives to Jesus and say we will celebrate his death and his resurrection together. This is not just a waste of time or something we do at the end of service. This is celebrating our Savior together. And while he was at his supper, the last Passover, he would celebrate with his disciples. He took the bread and he broke it. And would you break this with me? And as you listen to that breaking, we're reminded that Jesus said, this is my body broken for you, that we were loved enough that God, that Jesus Christ allowed his body to be broken for us. And then he held up the cup, the cup of redemption at the end of the Passover Seder, and he said, and then this, this is the blood that's going to be poured out for the forgiveness of sins for all people, for everyone so that we could be forgiven, past, present, future. This is what unites us together, amen? That we have been redeemed and there's nothing outside of God's redemption. Oh, I need that. <laughs> I've buried my fair share of Egyptians, let me tell you. But it's not held against me because of this. We celebrate his death, his resurrection. Would you eat and drink with me? Jesus, I thank you so much that as we come together to celebrate, you give us such a privilege of worshiping you through music and song. What a gift. I think of even the, the idea of doing you know, water day today and reverse fun day later. What a joy it is to have fun together as you did. And in this moment, there are many who have just simply said, I need and I desire to hear the voice of the Father saying, you are my son, my daughter, whom I love and in whom I am well pleased. And so Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help turn down the thoughts in our mind in this exact moment. 
that you would give us the blessing of cleaned out ears and heart to hear your voice. That for the things that the enemy is bringing up right now that says this is why you don't deserve that, that those would be silenced in the name of Jesus. And that the voice that has echoed through all eternity that you are loved would boom in our hearts and in our minds. That today we would walk uh, with head held high, not because of what we have done, but because we can answer the question, I know who I am. I am a son and a daughter. I am a child of God through Jesus Christ. Would we walk with confidence because of his life, not ours? And in doing so, truly know that we are blessed that we are chosen, that we are broken together and given just like you were, Jesus. Thank you for the privilege of celebrating this together through the life of Moses and the life of Jesus. We love you. We praise you. You are good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. May you go in peace knowing that you are deeply loved and valued.